This is a 980 CKNW podcast. Well, my next guest is the author of more than a dozen books on art and cultural history. One of those includes Emily Carr, a biography that won the Governor General's Award. And her latest book takes a look at sculpture, specifically sculpture in Canada. Dr. Maria Tippett joins us on the line. Thank you so much for taking some time with us this morning. Hello. Yes. Good morning. Uh, Good morning. Sculpture in Canada. This is a beautiful book. It's a huge hardcover book filled with sculptures. Uh, How did you go about uh, narrowing it down or deciding what to put in to this book? Well, that's that's a a very difficult question to answer because there are there have been so many fantastic uh, sculptures from the very early years, and of course. Uh, if you look at the book, you'll know I begin uh, 20,000 B.C., because I go back that far. Um, and I just used my own taste, my own personal preferences. Um, if I'd been writing an encyclopedia, I would have included everybody. And unfortunately, um, I did have to leave out a lot of uh, people who I quite like and would have liked to have included their works. But it's in this kind of survey that covers so many years. Um, I really had to be very highly selective. What is it about Canadian sculpture? Is there something that, uh, is there a common thread that makes it Canadian? Um, not really. Um, it, it has been governed um, since the very early period by patronage, uh, initially in the 16th, 17th, 18th, early 19th century by the church. So they were paying for it. Uh, and then we had governments celebrating statesmen, both British and uh, French, of course. Then the First World War, providing memorials. So I guess if, you, if you're really sort of looking for um, some sort of continuity, it would be that sculpture needs to have a patron. It's got to be financed. And um, many sculptors will probably tell you, and they, they would have said certainly in the last century, gosh, you know, we just couldn't get enough funding. Because, you know, unlike paintings, sculptures are big. Um, They're expensive to produce. They're expensive to move around. Um, Even though we see them today, you know, in front of universities, in squares, in in cenotaphs, uh, they're not like paintings. They take a lot of time uh, to produce and create and a lot of money. So maybe we could say that patronage, different kinds of patronage, different kinds of people paying for the work is, is a kind of theme running through this, this whole study. And when you talk about them being different from paintings, what about the, the emotions that they, uh, that they get from people? Are, are, is the reaction, human reaction to sculpture, how, is, how does that differ from, say, seeing a painting? Oh, quite different in a way. Well, we all, we, you know, we know that paintings have been as controversial as, as, as sculptures in many ways, but because sculptures are sort of in your face, because you see them, you walk by them on, your, on the way to your office, um, you don't have to go into a, a gallery to see sculpture. It's everywhere. That people can get quite sensitive about uh, uh, when they're put in certain places and they're part of the environment and to try and accept them. Let me take an example. You remember the Terry Fox Memorial that was erected in 1984, and it was simply an arch, a Roman-style arch with four fiberglass lions on top, and it was created by an American-born architect. Well, this isn't what the Vancouver public wanted. 
They wanted an image of Terry Fox. And so this work was eventually taken away, and another artist, sculptor, uh, Douglas Copeland, was, con- was commissioned to produce four uh, rather realistic renderings of Terry Fox, which beautifully caught his step-hop gait, which became so famous when he was running his Marathon of Hope across Canada. And everyone's happy with that. So works have been controversial, and I think they're controversial because they occupy our space in the way that, say, paintings don't. Uh, Do people expect sculpture to be more literal, then? Uh, That's a very good question. Yes, in some ways they do. Uh, I think in many ways uh, viewers of sculpture today have become more flexible, have become less rigid, even though the traditional form of sculpture is still requested. For example, when the four Mounties were shot in Alberta in 2005, what the small community uh, where they were shot near the uh, grow-up wanted was a monument for those four Mounties. It was a realistic rendering of those four Mounties. So even though we've got land art, which is which could be a mound of sand, which disappears with the next tide. That's a form of sculpture. Um, even though we've got um, a flesh dress, which comprises several kilos of meat, which will rot away. Uh, even though we've got these more imaginative and exciting works of sculpture, the public still wants something that's representational. And so what is so interesting, uh, I think, about this study is that alongside the more imaginative and, you might say, controversial works of the post-Second World War period, we've got, we still have these very traditional works of art. And is that why, too, when when you talk about it, it is in your face, it takes up a physical space when you're next to it, uh, that people are perhaps more open with saying that they don't like it or pointing out why they don't like it? Because it seems whenever there's a piece of public art, it does create that debate and it does get people bringing their opinions forward. Yes, it does. And quite frankly, I think this is good because it means people are looking, they're communicating. Uh, in a way that uh, they don't necessarily with a painting. And remember that if you're going to look at works of art, you usually have to pay something to see them. You have to pay to go into a gallery. Uh, Whereas with sculpture, it is, as you say, in your face. It's there. One, One other thing that I should say that I was doing in this book was I was very keen to include Indigenous Inuit art and to treat it as sculpture, particularly the formative years, particularly the early years, the 18th, 19th century, and even before, um, to treat them as works of art, not to treat them as uh, anthropological specimens that we view in glass cases, but these are really works of art. And in intermingling them with um, the non-Indigenous sculpture, I hope that I've made people realize that Um, First Nations or Indigenous art wasn't just born in the post-Second World War period uh, when everyone started calling it art. It has always been 
sculpture. It has always been art. And I suppose when we, even if we look at a form such as a totem pole, somebody might think of that as a carving, but it is a sculpture. It is a sculpture. And um, let's look at one of the one of the most recent Donnie Yeoman's uh, pole, which is in the Vancouver airport. Um, some may say, "Well, is this native? Is this indigenous? Is this uh, a representation of uh, Donnie Yeoman's tribal background?" When he includes um, um, Celtic knots, Chinese characters, as well as um, indigenous art forms, um, but it is—it is sculpture. It is art, um, and Yeoman's uh, and, and indeed other uh, First Nations artists' willingness to incorporate non-indigenous themes into their work is uh, um, a wonderful idea and a wonderful uh, um, artistic achievement. Uh, having uh, worked so hard to put this book out, 224 pages, uh, as you were saying, uh, many, many color pictures, did you have a favorite? Um, well, I have a favorite sculptor, um, but let's say that putting this book out, uh, I wasn't the only person involved. I had a fantastic photographer, uh, a man named Sergei Petrov, who had been working in, um, in, in Russia f- photographing uh, many many works of art there, um, and Alan McLeod, who who'd done a lot of work on uh, First World War um, uh, sculpture. Uh, so I had a lot of help in um, producing this book. You know, obviously I wrote it and did all the research, but there were other hands involved for which I'm I'm very grateful, and that is that is what what happens when you produce these kinds of works it's not just one person it's uh, it's many right right it must be uh, and i would imagine too even working on the team there's going to be a difference of opinion on you're going to like something better than than somebody else or somebody else is no, going to be drawn no, to something was, no it was funny uh when uh sergey petrov and i were thinking about which image to choose for the cover and, you know, there are 145 illustrations. You know, we went through them when we, we met, and we both said, we both chose the same one. <laughs> we both said, this is it. Um, so there was a wonderful, and I think that's why I think the book looks beautiful, <laughs> uh, because there was this um, harmony between uh, uh, myself and the, the few people I was working with, and it, it, it was really, uh, you know, doing the visuals and laying the book out uh, was was really a joy. It wasn't always easy, but um, it was um, it, it was wonderful, and I hope it's reflected in in the look of the book. Um, that's for the public to decide. <laughs> like exactly, exactly. Well, uh, Dr. Maria Tippett, we'll leave it there. But thank you so much uh, for having some time for us today. Lovely. Thank you. You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.